online at communitybiblechurch.us. WAGP Buford. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking questions that people have as they've been studying the scripture. Maybe they're looking for uh, meaning to the text itself or how to apply it, or they're facing a challenge in their life or ministry and you need some help biblically. Well, if we can serve you in that way, by God's grace, we will in the next hour. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 843-525-1859. 843-525-1859. We have internet listeners who listen to us and uh, we are so thankful for them. And if you want to use our toll-free number, it's the 877 toll-free exchange. Uh, the call letters WAGP 980, WAGP 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. So uh, when you call, you can go on the air live or you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it. Let's go ahead and get started, Rick. And All right, uh, Pastor, last week a caller would like you to uh, talk about how a congregation can encourage new believers as they try to assimilate into the church? And also, what are some ways a church can draw non-believers to attend? Should members of a church have home Bible lessons to encourage members and new attendees to get, no more people, get to know more people? Well, I think the, uh, let, let me start with the latter question first in terms of uh, reaching out as a church and then assimilating new members. Uh, the, the ways are endless in terms of how to reach out to people. Uh, but I think we, we need to equip folks in that realm. Uh, certainly, there are some things that every Christian can do. Every Christian can invite people that he meets during the week. And here's what is happening in America. I recently read a study that was put out by the Southern Baptist Convention. They are indeed the largest Protestant evangelical denomination in the United States. And they basically, the thrust of the article is that baptisms were dramatically down. And they had a graph in there and they showed how uh, baptisms from the 1970s and 80s climbed and then slowly leveled off. And then around 2000 began to decline. And now it is absolutely dramatic in terms of how few churches are baptizing anyone. And it's very, very sad uh, in the spirit of what is happening in the SBC, I think is reflected not just among them. I'm not picking on them, but I think it's a reflection of what is happening in evangelicalism today, that the average Christian no longer owns the great commission. 
he doesn't see it as his responsibility. Maybe he thinks, well, that's what we hire our pastor. Well, listen, no one hires me. I, I can't win souls for you. God hires me. People don't even pay my salary. They give to God and God gives back to me. I, I, I work for the living God, as do you as a Christian. Some earn their living from the gospel. And, but the rest of us you know, who may not receive any remuneration for the gospel still have the same call. Every Christian is to do the work of an evangelist. And every person listening to me right now has people in their world that they rub shoulders with that I might never have the chance to meet. And your pastor may never have the chance to meet. And God has given you that world to impact it. So I think churches, one, should give their members opportunities and ways in which to do that. One, train them on how to invite someone to church. Everyone can do that every week. And I hope all of my community Bible church members will do that this week, as I hope to lead in that way. Uh, If I don't invite people to church as a way of life, how can I expect my people to do that? And then God gives specific open doors to the gospel. Yesterday, I had some men, you know, working in my yard and I had an, an opportunity to share Christ. I mean, how could they be on my property and me not even talk to them about the Lord? That would be anathema. Uh, God brought them to my property and I wanted to be able to share with them and God opened a door and it was well received and I'm not done yet. So I'm excited about um, opportunities that God gives now in terms of us, you know, and again, there are, I was talking to a pastor in Florence and he said, you know, we used to win people to Christ and we're kind of, you know, we, we've, we've dropped dramatically in terms of the number of baptisms every year. And I said, well, let's start with your staff. Uh, the staff need to lead by example if they are not participating in the church. You know, there, there are some things that as every local church, the staff should lead by example. We expect all our staff to come to our Wednesday night meeting. We expect our staff to come to all the large church gatherings. Uh, th- that's just a given. They're not paid to do that, but if their heart is not in uh, these things, how can they invite people whom they lead to uh, share in that leadership? Uh, you know, so it's essential. But I said, start with the staff. You know, are the pastors reaching out? Uh, the people will often catch the mood of the leadership of the church. A church will often become like its pastor. So if a pastor never invites people, if a pastor never tries to share the gospel, how can he expect his people to? The pastor ought to be able to say like the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, so there should be opportunities too that might facilitate that. We just had an oyster roast pig picking and it was just a very, uh, pre evangelistic event that our people uh, reached out and said, Hey, our church is going to have a pig picking and folks come to that and it's fun. And they see Christians who are having a good time and they're not drinking and doing worldly things. And they think, you know, some of these born agains aren't as weird as I thought they were. And, and maybe they'll come and, and visit uh, the church. Uh, we had a little more direct. Uh, uh, it was still somewhat pre-evangelistic. We had a Valentine's banquet. And so the people uh, had a table and they invited their friends, their unchurched friends uh, to that. So there should be events throughout the year. We have a fall festival uh, where, again, um, we see that as an opportunity to reach out and to win people to Jesus. We're going to have an extravaganza. Uh, We don't worship the Easter bunny or the Easter egg, uh, but we often will become all things to all men and take even some of the things that may have pagan origins and use them and turn them around and chop the devil's head off with it. 
and win people to Jesus through it. And so we'll have, I hope, a few thousand people who will come on our campus and young families. And uh, we have a, a soccer ministry that's going on right now where families in the community can come and their kids can learn how to play soccer in a Christian atmosphere. In July, we're going to have a similar sports outreach. Uh, so there are things throughout the year that, again, it can start very, very small. When I came to Community Bible Church, we had under 200 people. Uh, I was told there was going to be 300 here. We couldn't count 140 on my first Sunday. And I said, I don't know who's doing the counting, but this is where we're at. And so we need to ask, well, what can we do as a small church? And you start um, one step at a time. And if a church is healthy and if the sheep are being fed, healthy sheep will will reproduce themselves. Now, some people are being fed, but not challenged to apply the word. And they're just big fat babies. Uh, listen, if you don't make application, I don't know of a person who's really spirit filled, who doesn't attempt to reach out to the lost. It's impossible. So that's just one side of it. Assimilation is obviously very important. What happens when a person actually receives Christ and you need to have some vehicle in which to help the new Christian to get grounded. We do something we call the discovery class. And it's a course that I wrote having followed up literally thousands of new Christians. And it's 45 weeks long. And I discovered over the years that most people have the same questions uh, in our first year of new life. And we want to help address those questions because we don't want to stagnate people and keep them spiritual babies. And it is true, I think what Dr. Graham said some years ago, that 90 to 95% of the genuine Christians in America have remained baby Christians. And I often see that as a pastor of people who come, but they've never really grown that much. And so you need a vehicle to help that. So like our discovery class, it's 45 weeks long. If someone comes to Christ this week, and I hope God will give us some new believers this week between last Lord's Day and this coming Lord's Day, people who will receive Jesus as Lord, and they'll be invited to the discovery class this coming Sunday. And they could walk in at week 30 and go to week 45 and through one through 29. And I make that course, by the way, available to other churches. I tell them you can use it, but you cannot change anything on it. The copyrights, everything. Um, because I've seen my material in other people's books. And to me, a lot of what happens in evangelical publishing is just disgusting. It's just a moneymaker. It's a greed-driven uh, process. And I don't want to have any part of that. So... I want to help churches if I can, and I'm sure there are many other good courses, but this is just what we've done. So that is a great question. That's a great commission question. Jesus commissioned us, and the Great Commission is found in five times in the New Testament. And probably the most popular expression of the Great Commission is found in Matthew 28. And for the last 400 years or so, we've been calling it the Great Commission. And it's in deference to the limited commission that Jesus earlier gave in Matthew's gospel, where he said, don't go to the way of the Gentiles, go simply to the house of Israel. And God did that for a reason, to demonstrate that he was a promise keeping God and the promises he made to Israel, he was indeed going to keep. But because of their rejection, um, at this point, he extends the commission. He would have anyway, but still they rejected their Messiah. They won't at some point. God's not done with Israel. He's going to culminate human history through Israel. But now he broadens the commission and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven on an earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all 
nations, of all the ethnoi, uh, of all the peoples of the world, in every people group. And those people groups are coming to America. Uh, we have the ethnoi here, the various Gentile groups, and God is giving us opportunity. We have people in our church who are Filipino and some Japanese and some German and some Indian and some Chinese. And God is bringing the people groups to the world of the world to America. And it's an opportunity for us to reach out. I get really excited because, you know, we live stream our services and I see a number of different people in India who aren't watching on Facebook or through other vehicles, but through the live stream. And that's exciting. Uh, And how did they find out about it? Because of Indian people here who are calling their family members back and say, hey, watch our service. And so God's using that as an outreach. So you go there for it and you make disciples of all the nations. What's a disciple? He doesn't say do discipleship of all nations. That's not what the text said. And it's been misrepresented in evangelicalism, I think, in the last 40 or 50 years. And it sucked a lot of the evangelistic zeal out of the church. And so you got these people who say, well, I'm just making disciples. And by that, they mean they're having a Bible study and they're gathering Christians. And that's all good. But it's no substitute for winning people to Jesus. If you're not engaged in attempting to bring people to Christ, you're not a spirit-filled Christian. Don't, don't live under some false delusion that the Holy Spirit is pulsating in your life. If you want to do a study on the spirit-filled life, follow the Acts of the Apostles, and it's so interesting to see the relationship, even in the giving of the Great Commission, between the role of the Holy Spirit in winning people to Jesus. Jesus assumed his church would obey this command. He told him in Acts 1, don't even go out and try to win the first person until the Holy Spirit comes. And when he gave the great commission, as it's expressed in Luke's gospel, he said this, that it, thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, You are witnesses of these, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So this is a different um, uh, giving of the Great Commission. The one in Matthew was on a mountain in Galilee. This was on the Mount of Olives right before the ascension. And it's also given in Acts 1. So there are five givings, so to speak, of the Great Commission that are recorded in the New Testament. The one in Luke and the one in Acts are, are, happen on the same day. You just have a broader, fuller expression. But the, the point is, is that there is a relationship between being filled with the Spirit and sharing your faith. And a lot of Christians today have missed that in And so they're doing discipleship, but that's not what the text says. Now, the New Testament teaches discipleship, though the word discipleship doesn't appear in the New Testament. That's kind of a theological catchword. But the text says to make disciples. You could use as a synonym there, make converts of all peoples. And what do you do with these converts? You baptize them. And by the way, that's the main verb. It starts with winning people to Jesus. If I have 50 cents in my left pocket and I move it to my right pocket, I don't have any more money. And a lot of churches are just shifting Christians or stealing sheep. And it's rare when they ever see someone actually come to know Jesus as Lord. Now, sometimes people are in a bad church and they need to go to a better church. 
or they are starving to death. But if a church is not bringing people to Jesus, then that church is really out of focus. Make converts of all peoples. What do you do with these converts? Baptizing them. That's the first act of obedience for the new believer. You baptize them, not in the names, but in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then you teach them. So they get saved, you baptize them, and then you teach them. And that's really the focus of the Great Commission. Go out, win people to Jesus. Every person listening to me today has someone between now and the next Lord's Day that they could at the minimal ask them if they have a church home. I I train my people at our new members lunch that we have virtually every Sunday. And I'll I'll say, well, um, you know, one of the things you want to do is just invite people to church and you'll be in a doctor's office and you'll be in a uh, going through the line at Walmart or out for a walk in the park or in your neighborhood. And if you're a friendly person and we ought to be, some of us so keep to ourselves and we're so shut up to ourselves, we, we don't ever speak to people. And we see the person behind the counter serving us or the waitress in the restaurant is that just that a servant to us, but not as a soul for whom Christ died. And we need to think in those terms. And so many times God will give the opportunity. You can just say, hey, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? And understand if the SBC survey was correct that was done here in Beaufort County, 82% of the people in Beaufort County do not attend church on any given Sunday. And by the way, that number is becoming more reflective across America. So sometimes people will say, yeah, yeah, I have a church. And what that may mean is they go once or twice a year, or it may mean they go to a church that doesn't even preach the gospel. Look, we've got churches in Beaufort County that now are marrying homosexuals. That's not a Bible-believing church. That's an apostate church. That's a false church. Those people are not Christians. Those pastors are not real shepherds. They are false prophets to take a moral evil and normalize it. But so we have people who are in bad churches and I'm not uh, afraid to ask people to leave churches like that. I'm not into stealing sheep. If someone's in a good Bible believing church, I don't want them to leave. But if they are in a church where the pastor's lost, that's not stealing sheep. That's rescuing goats and bringing them into the kingdom of God. So we want to win those people to the Lord Jesus and make a difference. Anyway, I'll get off this soapbox and we'll go to the next question. All right. Our next caller says he saw a YouTube video where Vadi Bauckham indicated he was not sure of Martin Luther King's Christian philosophy and whether it was solid. The caller would like to know if you know Martin Luther King's walk with the Lord and what your opinion is of Vadi Bauckham. Well, Vadi Bauckham's a good guy. Um, Not everyone listening to me uh, knows him. Uh, but he's a black evangelical pastor. He uh, is outspoken uh, about the truth of God's word. He's an expository preacher. He's a good fella. He's a great man of God. And so, number one, for an African-American believer to come to that kind of uh, analysis, I think, is important. So this is not some white man saying, I'm not sure Martin Luther King was saved. This is a black pastor who's solid in the word of God. I don't agree with everything Vaudy says, but 99% of this stuff, I would, we'd be on the same page. Um, This is a black pastor saying, I'm not sure where Dr. King really stood. And I'm not sure either. Uh, When I was doing my doctoral studies at Southwestern 
uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. Uh, we had various topics that um, ethical issues and my, my topic and you'd write a paper basically 40 pages and then you'd present it to a group. The classes were like 15 in these doctoral studies and one guy did a presentation. He was actually a black brother on Dr. King. And of course, you know, Dr. King was known as a womanizer, unfortunately. Um, he had what I would call the social gospel. The social gospel is the gospel that basically says we're here to change the culture, the society, um, by, um, you know, focusing on some injustices. And that's a good thing. And we should do that. But the social gospel is no replacement for the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Listen, racism is rooted in people who are unregenerate, who aren't born again, or if they are born again, they haven't grown very much. The root of all racism is basically the attitude, and there are many expressions of prejudice. It might be a rich person looking down on a poor person. It might be an educated person looking down on an uneducated person. It might be a black man looking down on a white man or a white man looking down on a black man. The root of all racism is the attitude, I'm better than you. And the true gospel of Jesus Christ shatters that. When you understand the ground is level at the cross, it changes everything you, that we're saved by grace. And then when you're actually born again, and you've been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit, then you come into a new family. It's called the body of Christ. And you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are of every stripe. People come into Community Bible Church on a Sunday morning. They're kind of like taking back some people. And they say, wow, what a divergent group of people. There's black, there's white, there's Hispanic, there's Indian, there's Chinese, there's Japanese, there's Filipino, there's German. There's all these different nationalities that are represented well, listen, if a church is in a community that's uh, when I was in South Africa and I went to a church, it was all black. Why? Because everybody in that community was black. There wasn't a white person who lived in that community amongst the cozy people. So I would expect the church to be all black. If I went to a community where everyone in the community was white and there was no Hispanics or African-American, then I might expect that church to be white. But Beaufort County, for instance, is 38 percent African-American. And if a local assembly says, no, we're serious about the Great Commission and we want to win people to Jesus, then they're going to reach every type of person that's in that community. And that's what Jesus said, in essence, when he said, go into the highways and the byways. Um, he, he was basically saying, don't be a respecter of persons. The highways were literally, it's a term where the road was higher, where the Roman government had, uh, initially it came out of the Persians, but then into the Romans where they built the road up. And when you went on that road, you paid a tariff, you paid a tax, so to speak, to use, uh, that road. Uh, the byways was the paths that were alongside of the highway. So we use the term highway today to refer to a road, but it literally came from a road that was higher than the byway. And so Jesus was saying, don't be a respecter of persons. You reach the rich, you reach the poor, you reach the people who can walk on the highways and those who have to walk on the byways. You go to everyone and everyone, all nations, and you win them to Jesus. So again, you know, I don't know Dr. Martin Luther King's heart. I hope I will meet him in heaven. Do I have the assurance that he was a born again, blood bought child of God who preached the gospel? No, I can't find a message anywhere 
that he ever taught where the plan of salvation was very clear. And if you're listening to me and you know of one, please send it to me because I've never seen one. Did he live an admirable life? You better believe it. The man addressed issues that needed to be addressed by evangelical Christians and issues that should have been addressed by the church. And we should have been out there. But it was very, very sad that racism was so deep and severe. And what he did, he he reflected a lot of biblical positions in terms of, you know, okay, we're going to march and we're not going to create... um, you know, anarchy in the culture and we're going to obey the law and uh, we're going to do it peacefully and things like, so he did some great things. And so I admire him deeply for the life he lived, whether or not he knew the Lord. I don't know. Uh, I just don't know. I hope he did. I hope we'll meet him in heaven someday, but God alone knows. And some people in the final days of their life have received Christ and maybe he didn't have a chance to preach a gospel sermon. So anyway, let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Uh, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Spencer from Locust Grove, Virginia writes, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, is Paul dealing with the believer's salvation and that they should examine themselves in regards to it and whether or not it is genuine? It seems to support what James is dealing with in chapters 1 and 2 and testing the genuineness of our faith. Am I on track? Let me uh, turn to Second Corinthians 13, and it's, uh, it's an interesting chapter. Um, l- let me get kind of a running start. He said, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that, that, by the way, is a great principle. You don't believe something naively because one person told you. For instance, God said, don't take a charge against an elder unless you have the testimony of two or three witnesses when he writes to Timothy. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Then he says, test yourselves. And this is the verse in question. Test yourselves, or you could render it, examine yourselves to see if you are of in the faith. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So Paul is asking the the Corinthians basically a very sobering question. He's asking them to ask themselves, am I really a Christian? That's pretty powerful. Am I really a Christian? You know, sometimes people come to our meet the pastor meeting, which we hold two, three, occasionally four times a month. And this is a meeting for our members to bring someone that they're trying to win to Jesus or, you know, an unchurched friend or for visitors. And uh, again, if a church is reaching out on a regular basis and inviting people, unbelievers will show up at their doorstep every week. And we ask some people some diagnostic questions of sorts to find out if they are a Christian. And sometimes it's not a mystery when you ask a person, hey, why should God let you into heaven? And they say, I have no idea. I don't know what I would say to God. 
then it tells you right off because the mouth speaks with what is in the heart that they are lost. Some people give an answer of good deeds. Well, you know, I think God should let me in because I'm, you know, I've never robbed a bank or murdered anyone and I live a pretty decent life and I go to church and basically they are saying, I hope my good works will secure salvation. If they feel like they're a really great person, they may say they're a hundred. If they feel like they're a really bad person, they might say they're zero. But that answer won't make it. That tells you right off as a pastor, they're not saved. It would tell you as a Christian, if you're sharing the gospel, they're not saved yet. Doesn't matter if they've joined the church, if they've been baptized, if they've prayed some sinner's prayer. If they think good works save them, then they're not saved. The mouth speaks what's in the heart. Paul says that Christ died for the helpless. He says you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. This whole salvation process, it, he's not talking about faith, but he's talking about the whole by grace through faith process. It, this whole salvation process is the gift of God. It's not as a result of works. It's not a reward for anything you've done. So nobody can brag. And so he makes it very clear that we are saved by the grace of God. Some people, you ask them why God should let them into heaven. And they'll say, well, I believe in God or I believe Jesus died or, and was buried. And it's Jesus plus. And that's the official position of Roman Catholicism. Christ uh, died and was buried and was raised. But what he did was not enough. You have to add to it in order to secure heaven. And so false doctrines like purgatory and other things are a logical consequence of that kind of thinking. But that's again, not what the Bible says. And when a person gives that kind of answer, you know, they are lost. But a person who says, no, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ alone secures salvation plus good works, good works being the byproduct of conversion. Then you are speaking really of a person who's met the Lord. Now there's a fifth equation. I don't list in my book, that I train people on how to share their faith with, it would say like this, it would say faith in Jesus alone. And by faith in Jesus, we're not talking about to trust him to put the next meal on the table or to keep you safe at night or to give you a new job, or those are things we need to believe God for, but that's not the kind of faith that will get you to heaven. Those are daily bread kind of needs we need to trust God for. God asked you to believe him for something he already did 2000 years ago that when Jesus was dead, buried and raised, that's what the Bible calls the gospel. And the gospel, Paul says, is the power of God to save you, that that is sufficient. So when there's a transfer of trust from self to Jesus alone, you're born again and good works follow. But the fifth equation, some people say, well, your faith in Jesus alone equals salvation and good works don't really matter. And they say, well, I'm saved. You know, I, I walk down the aisle of the church. I realize you're not saved by good works, but you're saved by grace alone, and I've received Jesus as my Savior, and I'm going to heaven. That's what's called antinomianism. Anti is we comes directly into English. We get our prefix, antichrist or whatever. Um, nomos is the word knowledge, or, or, or nomos, law, not Gnostic. But no, So these people are anti-law. They are against the law, so to speak, either in their theology, but in this case, by their testimony. That good works really don't matter. No, they do matter. Right after Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus onto good works or for good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved onto good works to do good works. Good works are the byproduct. They are the fruit. So Paul can say to some of these Galatians, test yourself in you know, we should be concerned that every believer have an assurance of salvation. 
But when Jesus speaks of many who will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do miracles in your name and all this stuff? He will say to them, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. Consider the context. He's not talking about people who are in false faiths, Hindus and Muslims. And now that would apply to them. But contextually, he's talking to people who say, I worship and believe in the God of Israel and in his Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. And these are people that Christ is going to say, I never knew you. I never, then the next verse is very telling. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, not you who sin. We all stumble in many ways, but you who have a lifestyle of sin. So we should be concerned in helping the new Christian to have assurance of salvation. And a person can initially have assurance on the basis of God's finished work, but it's a three-legged stool. And that's why in the New Testament, they would often baptize people immediately. And sometimes those baptisms don't always fan out. You end up discovering that that person's not a real Christian. You can only go by what they say. And you may later discover that they're not a real Christian. Look, the the church in Samaria baptized uh, a man who in Acts 8 was clearly not a believer, Simon the sorcerer. They thought he was, they baptized him. He had the right confession, but later his mouth spoke the opposite. So there are people who have a false assurance and they're the hardest people to win. So examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Um, that's important unless indeed he says you're disqualified. Paul knew that there are some Corinthian Christians who are disqualified from eternal life, from genuine salvation. Their thinking in essence was worldly because they were of the world and not of the Lord. And that's a hard truth to stomach sometimes, but it's better to test yourself now when you still have the opportunity to be saved than not to test yourself and die and find out you are eternally lost. I mean, what a, what a tragedy for someone to really think that they are going to heaven and then they die and they discover that they are eternally lost. So do we really demonstrate the fruit of salvation? When first John says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. We often place emphasis on the latter part of the verse and that's good. The Bible says you can know, not wonder or think, but know. And I know that's contrary to say Roman Catholics who call that the sin of presumption. They say it's, it's presumptuous, it's prideful, it's evil to say you know you're saved. Well, based on their system of theology, it would be. It would be boastful and prideful because how would you know you're really saved until you've done enough, until you have died and see if you did enough and see if you did what you did well enough. But it's not on the basis of human merit. Salvation is not a a gift to the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. It's not a reward for living a good life. It's a gift. The gift of God is something that is free that Christ has paid for with his own blood. So he says, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. What things I've written to you? That's an important thing. And the careful observer will say, when he says these things, what things? some of the evidences of conversion that he has written of in his first epistle. For instance, by this, we know we've come to know him that we pass out of life, out of death into life, that we love the brethren. That's one of these things that I have a new affinity for the people of God. 
to someone listening to me today, they said, well, I was saved, you know, when I was 12. And no, I don't go to church, but I'm saved. And I have no affinity for the people of God. And I don't really love God's people. Well, do you have an affinity for your own flesh and blood? Oh, yeah, of course. I love my kids. You know, they're my own flesh and blood. Well, if you're born again, one of the marks of conversion is you have an affinity, a love for the people of God, whatever they look like, by the way. Um, and uh, if you don't have that, you should question your salvation. Peter said it in these words uh, in his second letter in Second Peter 1 in verse 10. Uh, let me turn there. He says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling in choosing you. Um, make your election sure, he says. Be certain of your calling. He, he's basically saying, don't have a false assurance of salvation. And the church, Jesus said, is filled with such, such people, people who really think they're saved and going to heaven. And boy, they're in for the shocker of their life. And that's why God is admonishing us. Examine yourselves. Do you have the marks of genuine conversion? And so initially you baptize a person based on their confession and uh, their understanding that it is by grace alone through faith alone. And that's why, you know, God doesn't say you have to wait five years or 10 years before you can baptize that person. But with time, the church will see if that is a genuine conversion And every church, community Bible church included, will have people who say they come to an understanding of the gospel that they didn't have before. And they will confess Jesus is Lord and the pastor will baptize them. But they won't pan out. And Jesus said, there's going to be some people like that in the parable of the sower in Luke eight. They believe for a while they receive the gospel with joy, but in time of testing, they, that they fall away. Why? Cause their conversion was not genuine to begin with. You can't lose salvation. If you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never really had it to begin with. So that is a great question. And it's an important question that people need to ask and answer. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next caller wants to know in regards to tithing, does the increase include money family members have given towards a college fund? Well, that's a good question. You know, there are some expenses, I suppose, that you have no control over. Uh, I, I would say a good rule of test is the money that God puts in your hand. So, you know, you may be uh, a sophomore at the university and your parents come up to visit you and they say, son, you need a new set of shoes. And here's a, it, let me buy you some new slacks today and a new polo shirt. And you bless them with that. And I, well, let's see, dad just spent, you know, $138 and tithe would be 1380. I'm not saying that you shouldn't tithe off of that, but I don't think that, you know, that's necessarily expected that the, the Pharisees got to the point where they were legalistic. And that's what Jesus highlights. He said, you tithe even the mint and the cumin and the dill. He's talking about different spice leaves that grew in their gardens. Let's see, I got 10 mint leaves on this plant. I'm going to give one mint leaf to the Lord. You know, and of course, they neglected the weightier provisions of the law. You should have tithed, but not with neglecting. So he, his point was, is they, they, they got so rigid in the tithe that their focus was really warped. But as a general rule, whatever God puts in your hand, you give a tithe and your tithe doesn't belong to community Bible church, excuse me, to uh, WAGP or search the scriptures or focus on the family or family talk or any of those organizations. It belongs to your local church. And if you are a member of a Bible believing local church and you ought to be, that's where your tithe belongs. Now you can give an offering. 
So God speaks, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And then he reminds them that they had robbed him of tithes and offerings. An offering is above the tithe. And so giving is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. And there are some people who can give far beyond the tithe. And there are some people who have the gift of giving like J.C. Penney, who is a born again Christian. And he gave 90% of his income to the Lord's work. Uh, he had the gift of giving. That's what God enabled him to do. And then there are other individuals who, you know, God says, here's a tithe. And then there's a special need. And you're able to give an offering. Maybe it's a, we, we just introduced an opportunity just informally. There's going to be a formal introduction. There's about 6,000 languages in the world, about 2,000 that still need to be translated for um, people to have some portion of the gospel, partial or whole in their own language. And so the Community Bible Church family, we are adopting the Bakuna people. There are no known missionaries among them and they have no copy of the scriptures at all in their hands. And so we've adopted them and we're going to ask some people to give an offering above the tithe to take a verse. And it might be a child where he wants to buy a verse for translation. Cause we know the total cost of uh, having uh, some, some portion of the Bible so they can get saved in their hands. And, uh, and somebody said, well, I'm going to buy one of those verses for $25. And that might be an offering that they give or this station from time to time. We do a share and people give an offering above their tithes to this ministry so that we can broadcast and bring you solid Christian teaching throughout the day in good music as well. So those are offerings. So um, again, what God puts in your hands, start there and uh, go, go from there. But you know, if your family member says, Hey, here's a hundred dollars for your birthday. You know, my mother gave me a hundred dollars for my birthday. You know, immediately I, I don't have to blink at least $10 of that is going to the Lord's work. I don't even blink on that. That's a, above, uh, beyond what I expected, but God often opens the windows of heavens in ways you don't expect. Good question. Let's, let's go on. All right. We've been getting a few calls about your opinion of the movie, the shack. And I just want to remind you, uh, our listeners that you answered that last week, you can always go to WAGP.net yeah, and yeah. listen to the archives. So just uh, look for last week, which would have been uh, March 14th. And okay. Get, uh, Dr. Brogy's answer there. All right. Uh, this came in a while ago. I'm not sure whether it's all still applicable, but I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, Neil from Texas uh, writes, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Roman Catholic, has prompted legislation requiring the burial or cremation of unborn babies by healthcare facilities, excluding the home. I think it was discussed on the Bible line that God does not prescribe the burial of miscarried babies in the Bible, and therefore the Hebrews did not practice burial ceremonies for miscarriages. Uh, if this is biblically accurate, as opposed to extra-biblical traditions of the Jews, not endorsed by the Bible, then is the Texas governor imposing unbiblical Roman Catholic man-made traditions upon the state of Texas? I think you said that Texas was unbiblical in the past for allowing a thief to be shot and killed in broad daylight whereas the Bible only allows us at night when it falls under self-defense. Well, there's a, a lot of issues there, but let me first say I've never, ever, ever said in the Bible line that the Bible teaches that a miscarried baby shouldn't be buried, that you won't find that anywhere. I've never made that statement. So let me just say that right off. But, um, you know, there may be some people who are listening to me that have had a miscarriage, and I'm sorry for your loss because that is a real person that God conceived in your womb. 
and gave you as a family. And I think you have a right to bury that baby. And what's really sad is that in a lot of states where especially evangelical born-again Christians as well as Orthodox Jews, uh, and I say Orthodox Jews because there are so many uh, irreligious Jews, not just uh, here in America, but wherever you find them, uh, who really don't follow the God of Israel, and they're very worldly. And there's a lot of Jewish people like that in Israel. And then there are others that are very godly and love the Lord deeply. But there are Orthodox Jews and Evangelical Christians, typically, and sometimes Roman Catholics, because I, I have to give them credit. They have a right view of life. And in, in initially, in the years after Roe v. Wade, Evangelicals were sitting on their hands over the issue of abortion, and Roman Catholics were leading the way. And it was to our shame that those of us who have the truth shouldn't have been speaking up for the truth. And then one day we woke up and said, there's a Holocaust going on here in America. Understand before Roe v. Wade, uh, the average number of babies that were being aborted in America were 28,000 a year, 28,000. And now, you know, you have over a million babies every year since Roe v. Wade that are being aborted. We opened up the floodgates and actually it, it climbed. I think the first year it was under a million, but after that million, million and a half, million six, you know, fluctuates a little bit, but that's a lot of babies. And now that we've gotten more sophisticated in our birth control methods, it's still over a million a year. Um, and that's just the United States. We're not talking about worldwide because we became a model for the rest of the world that many other Western nations have adopted. And of course, the root of abortion is, you know, I, I want to, for the most part, be sexually promiscuous. And abortions are a problem because of the sexual immorality in America today. And they are widespread. But sometimes a mother goes into the hospital and she, uh, you know, is going to lose her baby. And she has to fight. She has to fight to get her baby given to her so that it's not just thrown in the hospital incinerator or, you know, viewed as medical waste. That's not right. That's not right. And I've met women who have gone down that route and it's really, really pretty sad. So what's happened in, in some of the states, um, Indiana, when Mike Pence was there, signed a bill just that went into effect last July, which basically gave women the option of what to do with their baby. In fact, they passed a law that said um, that uh, none of the babies would be used for medical waste and that they would at the minimal as the state, even if the mother didn't request it formally, uh, have those babies um, brought to a funeral home and either cremated unless the mother said buried. But you ought to be able to take your baby home if you want to bury your child in your backyard. Why? Because that's life. That is life from the moment of conception. Uh, God said to Jeremiah, I formed you before I knew you. Uh, he wasn't forming a piece of blob, uh, some fetal tissue. He was forming a baby. He was forming a person from the moment of conception. We are persons. In fact, Psalm 51, five says we're sinful persons because we all sinned in and with Adam. Uh, Paul said in Galatians 1 15 in, in like language, that God called him from his mother's womb. Uh, God didn't call a piece of uh, fetal tissue. He called a person to preach the gospel. Paul didn't understand that. He was once against Christ, but he later understood it. Psalm 139 is a great passage of scripture that 
really speaks of the formation of the bo- of the baby in the womb and God's uh, overseeing all that takes place for you did form my inward parts. You did weave me together in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My frame was not hidden from you. I was when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. So, so God supersedes and oversees the formation of a baby. God's the one who opens the womb. You know, we've gotten so arrogant, even as evangelicals, we think, oh, well, we're in charge of conception. When, oh, you're going to have a baby? Well, we're going to have a baby. Oh, oh, you're not pregnant? No, we're planning to have a baby. Oh, when? Uh, you know, you, you, you're, you're hoping to start a family? Or no, actually in March of 2019, we're planning to have a baby. Oh, well, tell me about it. That is about as arrogant as a couple can get. They're basically saying, I'm in charge of conception. We are overseeing conception. And God is the author of opening the womb. And that needs to be repented of. So God's very clear. Life begins at the moment of conception, both with John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus. They are viewed as babies, as brephos, while in the mother's womb. And the same term, baby, is applied to the child after he is born, whether it's John the Baptist or the Lord Jesus. So life begins in the womb, and I think states ought to give the mother without any problems. And sometimes, you know, a mother is going in and she's going to have what I would call a medical abortion or a DNC, and, um, and not to because she wants to kill the baby, but because she's lost the baby or she's you know, going into premature labor at six weeks or whatever. And you know, she ought to be able to have her baby if she wants to take that baby home. But you've got to kind of plead for it. But fortunately, in a few states, that has changed. And in some states, that needs to change, like our own in South Carolina, where you don't have to beg and plead for your baby if you want to take that baby and bury that baby somewhere. I appreciate that question. Uh, but that's an affirmation of what we really believe. Uh, that that's life, you know, and, and this is why, by the way, we don't typically cremate or at least we didn't historically, you know, I burn my garbage, but my treasure I bury and, you know, you, you don't burn the body. Uh, biblically, you bury the body uh, and it's a, it's an expression of faith and it's a model of obedience that you find in scripture. Very good. I think we've got time for one more question. This is from Placido in Wittensville, Massachusetts. Whitensville. Uh, Whitensville. I apologize. That's how they pronounce it. Okay. How similar will the millennium reign of Christ be to the pre-fall world? Isaiah 11, 1 to 9. The curse of sin will be lifted, but to what extent? Uh, Will there be still death? And will men be born having a relationship with God as Adam and Eve? Or will they be born with a sin nature and totally depraved? Well, there are certainly parallels, uh, but there are distinct differences And there are some books that have been written on heaven. And unfortunately, sometimes they take passages that are really describing the millennial reign of Christ. And they use those to picture the new heaven and the new earth. And that's not always entirely accurate. But with that said, there are there are parallels because it appears the curse is lifted off of the creation during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Uh, will there be death if a man lives to only be a hundred years? He's considered cursed. So it's possible for a person to die even during the millennial reign of the Messiah. But there is a certain harmony that comes back into the creation 
during the millennial reign of the Messiah that's not there today. The lion will lay down with the wolf. Uh, The cobra can be next to the uh, baby. Uh, The baby can be next to the cobra's nest and not be harmed. And so there is a, there is a, a certain a semblance of order and restoration that takes place during the millennial reign of the Messiah. Now, some of the people who write books on heaven use some of the passages that describe the millennial reign of the Messiah as heaven because they don't believe that Messiah is literally going to reign upon the earth. And they're, and they're just wrong. I'm not trying to be mean. They're just wrong. Uh, the promises that God made to Israel, he is going to keep. And he promised that there was going to be someone who would sit on David's throne and that he would rule from Jerusalem and that it would be for a thousand years. The concept of Messiah literally ruling upon the earth is not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept. And it's rooted not in conditional promises, but unconditional promises. The length of that kingdom being a thousand years, that length is given in the New Testament. That's not something that's revealed in the Old Testament. In the progress of Revelation, God gave us more detail as we come to the book of Revelation. But there are Christians today who think that the church has replaced Israel. And so those promises don't really apply and that Messiah is not going to actually reign. And the Jews aren't going to really acknowledge him as Lord. and, and, And they've misconstrued some of the passages of Scripture that deal with the people of Israel. But there's coming a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And that is still out in the future. And that's after the millennial reign of the Messiah. And so there'll be no vestige of sin. But we will see when we come to study the book of Revelation that begins here shortly, the week after Easter, uh, where we will do a verse by verse exposition, Lord willing. Um, And we will see when we come to the end of the revelation that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, as Peter says, in which righteousness dwells. And there'll be no vestige of sin and there'll be no death. Today, when a person dies, they go to the father's house. It's also called the new Jerusalem. But there's coming a time when the new Jerusalem will literally descend from heaven and sit on a new earth. And that new Jerusalem, in essence, is going to be the capital city. And you can call the whole ball of wax if you want heaven. But we've got a lot to look forward to as believers in Jesus Christ. That's a great question. And we're out of time, but we're glad that you could join us today for the Bible line. Uh, These are posted later on. Some people write us and um, they say, I'm at work, so I can't listen, but... Would you answer my question? They go back and listen later. How often does, how long does it take you to post the Bible line, Rick? Oh, no more than about uh, an hour. So about an hour later, it's usually up online for, for people to be able to listen to. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.